Welcome to the Overflow Podcast. We pray you are encouraged by this message. For more info, notes, or other messages, visit our website at overflowdfw.com. Tony wants to look at a passage from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. A short passage, but there's a lot of stuff um, in this. More than I will cover this morning. I'm just going to do basically an overview of of this, but this is, is what we're looking at. So Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Philippians is written by Paul um, when he was in prison, actually, and about a year and a half ago, I had a chance to go on a missions trip to, uh, to Macedonia, which is in uh, southern Europe, right above Greece. And uh, during part of the trip, they were able to actually go like a day trip into Greece, so that was, that was kind of cool. And we actually went to the ancient city of uh, Philippi, where, he, where this was, you know, written. And we saw, I mean, they don't know for sure where Paul was in prison, but in the, in the ruins they have a spot that, that archaeologists and historians believe was the, uh, the place where, where this letter was written. And so that's pretty, pr- a pretty powerful thing in my life, just to, you know, it takes the intangible uh, black and white uh, ink and page and, and gives it color and gives it dimension and gives it life. So... Pretty, pretty uh, cool experience. But Paul says, beginning in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. I like how he re- repeats it there. He's reminding us, you know, it's like he's saying, and for everybody in the back, I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So it begins with this, like, uh, this call to, to rejoice. And, you know, he says it twice. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say rejoice. And the way I kind of think about this is like Paul is saying, Dis- discover joy where you are, Right? Um, he's not saying that when we face difficulties, when we're in the midst of tragedy, when, when things are upside down in our life, he's not saying that we necessarily have to rejoice about that circumstance. But I think what he's saying is find other areas in your life that you can, can rejoice in. And like uh, maybe you're void of joy over here, but you've got a, a bunch here that you can dig up and, and work with and, and go with. It's kind of like a, a farmer, you know, goes out into the field. Uh, a farmer's not going to go out and curse the ground, and he's not going to curse the crop, and he's not going to curse the weather. He's going to bless the soil. He's going to speak uh, blessing and provision and promise over the resources that he's been given. And I think that's what we do when we rejoice in the Lord. We rejoice in his goodness. Um, we're making declarations over what the Lord's going to do. You know, we make declarations over our... Um, over our ties and over our income and, and all of that, but declarations are powerful in all areas of our life, right? Uh, and something that, that Lindsay and I have experienced in, in our life really in the last couple of months, um, we live in an apartment complex um, kind of on the edge of downtown Dallas. It sounds glamorous, but it's really not. Um, and, and at times we've been very frustrated there, you know, and we're like, you know, why are people always smoking like five feet from the, from the door? 
uh, why are our cabinet doors always falling off? Why is this broken? Why is this not working? And I mean, it's easy to get into a cycle of complaining, right? And, and what we're doing really is we're just more or less speaking curses <laughs> over that place that we live. So how counterintuitive is that? We want something to get better, so let me talk bad about it and let me complain and, and gripe about how terrible it is. And then naturally it's going to get better, right? I mean, that makes sense. Um, so what we've tried to do is, is shift that and just, just make declarations, right? And, and just rejoice, hey, we do have a place to live. Uh, and, and rejoice in the other areas of life and just speak declaration and speak blessing over that place that we live. And man, I would encourage uh, all of us to, to just look for opportunities today to, to make a declaration of God's goodness, make a declaration of God's provision, make a declaration of God's kindness over some area of your life. So when the inclination is to uh, complain or to gripe, uh, try to move it in the opposite direction and, and begin to rejoice. Um, and what I love about rejoicing is that it takes us from a place of panic to a place of rest, right? Because when we're worried, when we're frustrated, when we're angry, uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually, uh, we're, we're in a place of panic. We're in a place of unsettledness, right? And so when we rejoice, it, it, it can take us from that place of panic to a place of rest. And the great thing is that <clears throat> when we're in a place of rest, we're able to make a lot better decisions. You know, uh, I know professionally, personally, uh, as a husband, as a dad, as a friend, if I'm in a place of ease and a place of rest, not that everything's going just as I want, but spiritually, emotionally, mentally, if I'm in a place of rest because I've been rejoicing, then, then it's easy for me, easier for me to make clear decisions, to hear from the Spirit, and to, to take action. So Paul's saying that, uh, that rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And then verse 5, he says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. And I think, I think this is a reference uh, to a couple of verses earlier here in Philippians 4. It's not going to be on the screen, but Paul was uh, addressing uh, an, an issue in the church there where these uh, two ladies were in a dispute about something. And Paul, uh, I think here, is, is calling, calling them back to that and saying, hey, uh, in the midst of this dispute, in the midst of this argument or situation, whatever it might be, Paul's saying, let your gentleness be known. Um, so I think he's, he's, he's teaching us here that uh, Part of peace in our life is that we are in a place of relation, a place of proper relationship with each other, right? Uh, maybe the anxiety, the fear, the worry, um, the struggles that we're, we're having, uh, maybe some of it perhaps is due to, uh, you know, an unreconciled situation with, with someone. And this word gentleness, it doesn't mean weakness at all. It means uh, that we're being assertive. When we lived in, uh, in El Paso, uh, we went to a church, a really, really awesome church called Paseo Church. It met right on the edge of downtown and uh, one of the poorest areas in El Paso. So it was like at this crossroads of the financial center of the city and the center of the homeless population. So we had all kinds of people coming in every Sunday. And one Sunday, I saw this incredible thing. I saw a homeless man sitting at a round table right next to a brain surgeon. 
and they were talking to each other. Um, and it was just really, really cool. But this, this brain surgeon, his name was uh, uh, Todd, but really, really amazing guy. And uh, as I was working through this sermon, I, I thought about, about him. And uh, a brain surgeon has to be gentle, right? Uh, they have, but that doesn't mean weakness, and it doesn't mean a lack of power. They have a lot of strength, and they have a lot of power when they're operating on somebody's brain. Uh, but they're operating on somebody's brain, obviously, because something is, is wrong. You know, you don't just open up somebody's skull for, for kicks. Uh, something is seriously out of alignment if, if you're having brain surgery, right? Uh, and the purpose of that gentleness, so like strength under control, uh, is the purpose of that is to restore and to redeem. So I think Paul is, is teaching us here that... Um, Part of peace in our lives, first, is to rejoice. And a second aspect of peace in our lives is that we operate in gentleness with each other. And that we, if, if needed, that we rest, uh, restore and redeem and, and make right something that's out of alignment. So Paul goes on and he says, uh, a great reminder, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. Sometimes in our lives, if we're not experiencing peace, our default is to say, I need to work harder on peace, right? <laughs> I need more peace. I need to, to be more peaceful. It's, it's like we begin to try to, to will ourselves to do that, which uh, generally doesn't end well, you know, because usually we're less at peace. The harder we're working on peace, the, the less peace we experience, or the harder we work on joy, uh, sometimes the less joy we have, or the harder we work on love, maybe the less love we have. And so, um, you know, it's uh, this idea that we can choose joy or choose love or choose peace. And, and I understand, like, the, the heart behind that, but um, scripturally and spiritually, I'm not sure if, if that's really possible for us to choose those things because... Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that those are fruit of the Spirit, right? So if I can bear those out in my flesh by determination and by will, um, it's not really a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of the flesh. And so I think in, in this aspect of, of peace, right, rather than saying I need to work harder on peace, maybe what we need to, to take the, the mindset of um, I need to practice abiding, in Christ, right? John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear how much fruit? A lot, much fruit. Um, I grew up farming and, and part of what we did, not, not for money, but just for, uh, for fun, was we had some fruit trees, right? Apples, cherries, peaches. Um, and when you plant a fruit tree, uh, you know, you, you dig a hole, you, you order it from the store, dig a hole, put it in the ground, the tree is in the ground when you plant it, but it's not really abiding in the ground, right? It's, it's in the ground, but it's not abiding. The tree begins to abide in the ground after a couple of years when it puts out the roots and when it establishes itself. That's when it's abiding. So uh, a fruit tree really isn't going to produce any fruit probably for two years. So imagine that, you know, uh, a farmer went out, planted a tree, Six months later, the tree had no fruit, and he just dug it up. He said, ah, this tree is worthless. It's not doing anything. Um, abiding takes time, right? And the beautiful thing about abiding, and, and to go back to the tree illustration, 
that a, a tree, when it puts out those roots, um, it's abiding in the resources of the ground, right? Everything that the ground has, the tree now has access to because it's abiding. And so the, as the tree abides in the ground, then the ground begins to abide in the tree. Same is true for us, right? When we're abiding in Christ, what are we abiding in? We're abiding in his wisdom. We're abiding in his love, his joy, his peace. And as we abide in him, he begins to abide in us. And his peace is abiding in us. His love is abiding in us. His joy is abiding in us. God wants us, to, uh, <clears throat> wants us to be as happy with the process as we are with the outcome, you know. We want to be happy with the outcome, and we want the outcome. Uh, we want the fruit, right? Uh, but maybe God is saying, uh, I want the abiding. What if that's what he's inviting us to? It seems like in John 15 that the, the commandment and the truth that Jesus taught uh, it was about abiding. It wasn't about bearing fruit. Now, we are called to bear fruit, absolutely, uh, in accordance with righteousness. But the, the commandment was to abide, and it's like Jesus was saying, and then as that happens, the, the fruit's going to come, right? So the, the process is abiding. The outcome is the fruit. Then Paul goes on to say, um, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything. With prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. See, what prayer does is it shifts our focus, right? It allows us to see the realities of heaven and draw down the resources that we need. What prayer does is it, it takes us um, to the, the truth that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places at the right hand of the Father. And we begin to draw from what heaven has instead of what earth has has. You know, when we're praying, what we're doing is we're calling down the resources of heaven, and we're receiving the revelation and resources of heaven. You know, sometimes God uh, doesn't necessarily, his, his primary goal isn't necessarily to give us the resources. His primary goal might be to give us the revelation, right? A, a deeper and higher revelation of himself. And so maybe what we're doing is we're saying, God, I want the resources to come. And we pray and pray and pray, and we feel like there's no answer, right? And we're like, God, why aren't you answering? God, why aren't you providing the resources that I need? And God, in, in only a way that he can do, uh, gently whispers to us, uh, you're asking for the wrong thing. You're asking the wrong question. Um, ask for a deeper revelation of my character, a deeper revelation of who I am, right? Uh, Jesus, when he was with the disciples uh, out on the sea and the storm came up, uh, Jesus, Jesus had already told them the outcome of what was going to happen because before they got caught in the storm, Jesus said to them, let's go to the other side, right? Jesus had already de declared what was going to happen. He said, let's go to the other side. But in the middle, in that trip to the other side, uh, a storm came up, right? And the disciples were terrified. Jesus was sleeping. And the disciples thought Jesus didn't care about them. The disciples thought that, that Jesus had, had abandoned them. Um, but maybe the, the point of that story is that, that uh, Jesus was sleeping because he wanted to give them a deeper revelation of who he is. And he calmed the storm 
Uh, they were wanting the resource of, of, of safety, right? They were wanting the resource of being out of that storm, of that storm being uh, resolved, that issue being resolved. But uh, Jesus had a higher purpose, um, and that was to reveal to them that he was superior over nature, that uh, even the winds and the waves obeyed him. Uh, how amazing is that? And, and, and in the course of, of Jesus uh, giving them that deeper revelation, they also got the resources that they wanted as well. So usually it's, it's not one or the other, but the, the problem that, that we encounter is when we flip it, right? And we just want the resources without the revelation. Uh, but what the Father wants to give us is the revelation, and then oftentimes after that, the, the resources will come. You know, God... Uh, won't always transport us out of the situation, but he always seeks to transform us in the midst of the situation, right? So he didn't transport the disciples out of the storm, but in the midst of that storm, he did begin to transform them. Uh, I love this truth that, that God, what God wants from you, he will first give to you. God doesn't ask anything from us that he doesn't first give to us, right? So like in my relationship with, with my daughters, uh, you know, Harper's four and a half, uh, if I wanted Harper to um, give me something, if, if there was a plate of cookies and I said, Harper, could you go get me a cookie? It would be very cruel and mean of me to say, Harper, go get me a cookie if there's no cookies in the house, right? Um, and God's not going to... God, who's a good father, way better father than I could ever be, um, he's not going to say, give me something if he hasn't already given it to us first, right? It's kind of like thinking about the commandments in the scripture, like uh, be holy because I am holy, or be still uh, and know that I am God. What if every commandment in scripture was a, a declaration of what God was about to give us, you know? What if he said, be still, because he's about to teach us about stillness? What if he said, be holy? And when he says that, what if he's, what he's saying to us is, because I'm about to transform you into a, a higher degree of holiness. What God wants from us, he's first going to give to us, you know. And, and in our lives, sometimes uh, as he's speaking these things to us, as he's teaching this, this, these things, um, it may be... Uh, bringing up issues in our own life of, of some sin or some unrighteousness that needs to be dealt with. But even in that, um, his purpose for revealing that sin is redemptive, right? It's to bring us freedom. It's to bring us liberty. Uh, and so really, when, when God reveals sin in our lives, uh, what he's doing is he's prophesying over you the freedom that he's about to bring. Um, I want to say that again because to me that was like a super powerful truth that when God uh, brings, brings to mind or, or convicts uh, of sin in your life, he's not doing it for the purpose of condemnation. He's not doing it for the purpose of shame. He's not doing it for the purpose of uh, discouraging you or bringing you down. Actually, what he's doing is he's saying, uh, I'm prophesying over you what I'm going to do in your life. I'm prophesying over you the redemption and the freedom and the liberation that I'm bringing to you. So you see, God oftentimes, uh, he'll speak a reality over us before that reality is lived out, right? So take the story of Gideon, Gideon chapter 6. Um, 
Gideon was, was raised up by the Lord as, as a warrior. We know that part of the story. But the beginning of that story, it talks about that the, uh, the people of Israel had been under siege for seven years by the Midianites. That's a long time to be under siege, right? And it says that the uh, Midianites would camp around the outskirts of where the Israelites were, and they would come in, and they would raid, and they would take everything, and then they'd go back out. Um, so think about it like, like this. Um, you know, if you uh, were working a job, and every day, or not every day, but, you know, for seven years consistently, the same group of five people held you up at gunpoint and said, give me all the money that you earned today. Um, you know, that's kind of a fearful thing uh, for the same group of people to be coming for seven years and taking everything. And so when we're first introduced to Gideon, uh, I don't know, this is just amazing to me. Uh, the angel spoke over him. He said, you're a mighty warrior, right? But, but that was the reality that was being prophesied over him. That was the, um, his prophetic calling and his, his destiny was a mighty warrior, but when that was spoken over to him, he was threshing wheat in a wine press, right? Uh, you're supposed to press wine in a wine press and thresh wheat on a threshing floor. And there's a, there's a big difference between the, tr- the, the, two, <laughs> the two things. Um, a wine press is a hole in the ground, right? A threshing floor is out in the open, but because of these raids and because of these Midianites coming onto the people of Israel, Gideon was down in this hole out of fear, threshing wheat. Um, see, when, you thre- when they would thresh wheat back in the, uh, this, this time, what they would do is they'd have a big open area with stone. It was hard. And they'd have animals that would walk around and carry a heavy rock and it would separate, separate the grain from the chaff, right? So the wheat from the chaff. So it would get separated. And then they would take like a pitchfork and they would toss it up into the air. The chaff would blow away because it was lighter. The grain would settle down. And so that was the process of, of threshing. And so it needed to be out in the open, right? So that the wind could take the chaff away so that it wasn't as dusty. It would be more effective. It would be more efficient. Um, and what a what a story of uh, an illustration of, of what fear can do in our lives, right? Uh, fear can put us down into a hole, uh, either a, maybe literally, or maybe figuratively. But when we're in that hole, uh, our effectiveness is limited and our efficiency is limited. Just like for Gideon, uh, he sh- in optimal situation, he would have been threshing in a big open area because that's where it would be most effective and most efficient um, and that's what it was designed for. But because of fear uh, and because of this uh, siege of, of seven years, he was down in a hole. So Gideon is down in this wine press, and the angel says to him, you are a mighty warrior of God. Um, what's God declaring over you today, you know? Uh, maybe you're living in fear, and God is saying, you are a mighty warrior of God. Maybe today you're struggling with uh, a lack of financial resources, and God says, you are a generous person. Um, I, I don't know. It's just, it's just amazing how God, throughout the scriptures, prophesies the opposite of what we are over us, <laughs> right? 
Same thing for Peter. Uh, when they were at Caesarea Philippi and Jesus uh, encountered Peter and he said to Peter, uh, your name is Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Immediately after that, uh, you know, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, to Peter, right? So the reality hadn't come into being yet. But just because Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, doesn't mean that that negated what he had spoken over him in the beginning. And then at, at Jesus' uh, trial and, and crucifixion, Peter was nowhere to be seen. He denied him three times. Um, but the reality is Jesus had already spoken over him his character, his destination, his calling. So the same is true for us, right? Jesus has spoken over you. The Father has spoken over you. Uh, it may not be reality <clears throat> yet. You may not be living it out consistently yet, but that doesn't ne negate what has been spoken over you, what has been prophesied over you, what has been promised to you. And that's what, that's what prayer does, is it shifts our focus from the here and now to the realities of heaven. We begin to draw down those realities of heaven, those resources of heaven, that revelation of heaven. We begin to draw that down through prayer into our lives, and that's when we begin to see the transformation and the reality come into being. Graham, Graham Cook, who I love listening to, he puts it like this. He says, when God encounters us, it's always implicit to his character and ex explicit to our situation. Man, that's powerful, right? So when God encounters you, he's speaking implicitly. That means, you know, with detail, specifically to you. Uh, and it's always explicit to his character, meaning it will never be outside of his character, outside of his nature, outside of who he is. So prayer allows us to draw down these resources of heaven, and it also allows us uh, to move in the opposite spirit of whatever we're encountering, right? Um, if you have any interaction with people on a regular basis, you have the opportunity to practice this, um, right? Uh, so for, for me, uh, in parenting, um, oftentimes our kids will come to us, they're angry, they're frustrated, they're whatever they're feeling, uh, sometimes even our spouse will do that. Lindsay doesn't do that often, but I come to her sometimes angry, frustrated. Um, but if, if we interact with anybody, we have an opportunity to either join in their perspective or come in the opposite spirit, right? So um, if I'm in a conflict with someone and they, they come to me and they're angry, uh, if I meet their anger with my own anger, it doesn't just add anger to anger. It multiplies it exponentially, right? It escalates the situation. But if somebody comes to me in anger and, uh, and I move in the opposite spirit of peace or reconciliation, it, it, it negates it and it begins to diffuse the situation. And so, you know, for me... Uh, I probably have 100 opportunities a day to move in the opposite spirit. On a good day, maybe I get 8 or 10 out of that 100 in the opposite spirit. Um, but when we do move in that opposite spirit, um, first of all, it, it helps us establish peace in our hearts and in our lives. And it's also teaching us and those around us about the character of the Father, right? Because uh, 
with our sin, what does the Father do? He moves in the opposite spirit. doesn't mean that he necessarily turns a blind eye, that he says everything is okay, but um, he does move in the opposite spirit of the flesh. He moves in the opposite spirit of sin. And so as we pray, what we're doing is we're, uh, we're neutralizing that uh, spirit that's coming against us. And what I'm learning is that, you know, the proverb, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Um, not only does it turn away the other person's wrath, but it turns away my wrath too, right? So when I respond <coughs> to someone, excuse me, <coughs> with a gentle answer, uh, hopefully I'm turning away their wrath, but what I do have control over is turning away my own wrath. Paul moves on and he says, give, give thanks. And I love that because what we do is when we give thanks, we're, we're moving in the opposite spirit, right? And w- what we're doing is we're beginning to break the spirit of poverty and the spirit of lack in our, in our own lives or our own situation or our own circumstances. Because at least for me, I don't know about you guys, but at least for me, um, at, the, at the heart of worry, anxiety, fear, anger, anything that's the opposite of peace, <laughs> uh, at the heart of that, for me, usually is a sense of lacking or a sense of missing out, right? So if I'm anxious about my finances, it's because I feel like something is lacking there that God's not going to provide. Um, if I'm anxious in something about parenting, it's because I feel like, hey, we're missing out on providing something that they need. If I'm anxious about a relationship, usually it's because my perception is something is lacking there. Something is not what I want it to be. So when we give thanks, what we're doing is we're moving in the opposite spirit of, of, of lacking, and we're moving into the spirit of abundance and provision and, and rejoicing for, <coughs> for what we do have. And so... Something that, uh, that Lindsay and I have started practicing is probably three or four days a week, uh, we'll just send a text message to each other of some th- three things that we're thankful for, right? Sometimes it's like, I'm thankful that I remembered to brush my teeth this morning. You know, it doesn't have to be like this huge, huge thing. But, but when we do that, uh, what we're doing is we're doing a couple of things. One is we're, you know, we're... Uh, coming against a a mindset of poverty, a mindset of lack, a mindset of deficiency. And also when we we share with someone else uh, for what we're thankful, uh, we're we're being vulnerable with that person, right? And that's a powerful thing. Uh, And then as we're vulnerable with them, it it deepens the connection, right? And so uh, perhaps that's something that that some of us can begin to do Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a brother, a parent, a sister, but maybe, you know, two or three times a week you just begin texting them, hey, this is three things that I'm thankful for, and, and ask them to, to reciprocate. And as you do that, um, I think you will see a, 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 perhaps a deeper connection begin to build with that person. And then Paul uh, finally says that, that peace is what comes about as a result of these things, right? Uh, he says that this peace uh, is beyond our comprehension. Um, it's supernatural, right? It supersedes the natural circumstances. It supersedes the natural resources. It supersedes what we can observe with our senses. Um, we have peace when we connect with the heart of God. When we connect with his heart, when we rejoice 
when we are uh, in a gentle spirit with each other, when we abide, when we pray, when we give thanks. And this picture of guarding our heart and, and guarding our mind, um, I think it was like three weeks ago, maybe a month, I can't remember, but Pastor Josh was speaking about when Peter was in prison, right? And he had all of these guards around him. Uh, and I, I believe it was like, there were like maybe 16 guards or something, like four groups of four. And I think that's kind of the, the picture of what Paul's painting here, right? He's in prison, right? And he's got all these guards around him. And so maybe Paul is drawing on that illustration of, just as I have all of these guards around me, uh, you too, when you rejoice, when you're gentle, when you abide in the Father, when you pray, when you give thanks, these are setting up a guard of peace around our hearts, around our minds, right? And it's kind of like, you know, in the United States, president, high-level government officials, they have the, the Secret Service all around them, right? And many of them, even after, after they're out of office, they still have access to that, that protection, that guarding. How much more so for us as uh, sons and daughters of the Father do we have uh, peace guarding our hearts, guarding our minds, uh, I just want to invite you this morning to, to stand up. Maybe open your hands if you want to. The, the prayer, uh, prayer and ministry team will be up here at the front if you want to come for prayer. Uh, they would love to pray for you. If you want to just stand where you are, that's fine too. But just raising your hands and uh, just kind of picture in your mind that you're being, uh, you're being guarded by a spirit of rejoicing. You're being guarded by a spirit of gentleness. You're being guarded by a sense of connectedness, of abiding with the Father. You're being guarded with prayer. You're being guarded with thanksgiving. And as all of these things are surrounding you and encompassing you, what they're doing is they're guarding your heart, they're guarding your mind with the with the peace of the Father.